Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Rosie Tillis, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for a yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Please stay tuned after the podcast for a brief message from our sponsors. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hit series lecture for hand tendons. This is all things hand tendons and is taken from testable facts from the last five to eight years of the in-service. And make sure to visit www.theresonantreview.com to follow along with our outline. So I'll start us off today with some tricky tests. That's what I call them. There are a bunch of tests that were frequently asked about on our in-service examination that can get a little bit confusing. So first is the Elson's test. This is a test of the central slip. So this is to evaluate a central slip injury. If you have a central slip injury, when you flex the PIP, the DIP will extend. And this is due to volar subluxation of the lateral bands. Typically, this will be negative to due to lateral band laxity. So in a normal patient without a central band injury, flexion of the PIP will have a floppy DIP joint. The quadrigia effect is a result of excess distal pull on one of the profundus. So they share a common muscle belly. So one pull decreases the pull of the others. And that can occur secondary to amputations or fusion, or if you advance uh, FDP more than one centimeter. So that will have a flexion of one finger with reduced flexion of the adjacent fingers. A lumbrical plus deformity is caused by division of a distal tendon or FDP that results in proximal migration. And this exacerbates tension on the lateral band. So remember that your lumbricals originate radial off of the FDP tendons. If the flexor tendon retracts and you can get tightness of your lumbricals and a lumbrical plus. So paradoxical extension when you're trying to make a fist treatment includes division of the lumbrical tendons, resection, or division of the lateral band. Extrinsic tightness, which we were just tested on. So remember, tendon tightness is noted in cases where MCP flexion limits PIP flexion. And intrinsic tightness is noted if the patient cannot flex the PIP joint with the MCPs and extension. Next, I'll go over a little bit of extensor anatomy. So the extrinsic extensor tendons provide digital extension to all three joints, the MCP, PIP, and DIP. And the intrinsics will flex the MCP and extend the IP. So that's a general rule. There's different zones and the zones go one through seven where you start at the distal DIP zone one, middle phalanx two, PIP three, proximal phalanx four, MCP five, so forth and so on. Extensor tendon repairs are worse in zone three and zone six. And remember that the juncture A tendon are tendon like bands that connect the long ring and small finger. And so if you have a long finger laceration of your extensor tendon, the others will apply extensor force and you really won't be able to see it. Okay. Sagittal bands aid with extension at the MCP. And if you have an sagittal band rupture or extensor tendon injury, you can treat this with a relative motion extension splint. So this keeps the tendon at 15 to 20 degrees more extension than the other fingers, which we've been tested on. Extension at the PIP is from extrinsic through the attachment of the central slip or the intrinsic tendons through the lateral bands, which is proximal to the central slip or the intrinsics. And we were tested on that. So it was, I think the tricky part is those lateral conjoined bands or the interosseous tendon and you pick interosseous tendon. Extrinsic extension at the DIP is produced by both the extrinsics, which is through the direct attachment of the terminal tendon and the intrinsics, which again is by the conjoined lateral bands proximal to the DIP. The oblique retinacular ligament connects the flexor tendon sheath volarly to the terminal extensor tendon dorsally. And if a patient sustains a laceration to the extensor mechanism over the body of the middle phalanx bone, the oblique retinacular ligament may prevent the occurrence of an extensor lag or a mallet deformity. 
All right, Rosie, why don't you take us through boutonnieres and swan neck, which we're frequently tested on. All right. So boutonniere deformity is the flexion at the PIP and hyperextension of the DIP. It results from loss of the extensor forces at the PIP with palmar migration of the conjoined lateral bands secondary to a triangular ligament insufficiency. So think volar migration and also think triangular ligament injury, central slip injury. Central slip injuries can occur from lacerations or avulsions like a direct blow to an outstretched digit attrition from chronic inflammation like RA, burns, or other traumatic injuries. It can result in a fixed deformity. So presentation, usually the main complaint of these patients is hyperextension of the DIP, and they can develop an arthrosis of the PIP. You can do Elson's test, which was described earlier, which is with flexion of the PIP, the DIP will extend due to a central slip injury. Treatment of near deformity can range from conservative to operative. Conservative treatment includes hand therapy and corrective orthosis to obtain a full passive range of motion. You can splint the PIP and extension and leave the DIP free for six to eight weeks, and you then initiate range of motion DIP exercises. Operative treatment of the boutonniere deformity includes relocating the lateral band dorsally. You can do a fowler procedure, which is a surgical lengthening of the terminal tendon for the DIP. A dorsal repositioning of the subluxated lateral tendons or repair tightening of the central slip, which is called a littler procedure. If there is arthrosis that develops, you can do an arthrodesis or arthroplasty. Just remember that in general, if it's acute, you, you can treat it with orthosis. So that's extension of the PIP and DIP free for six to eight weeks. If it's subacute or chronic, then you need to assess their suppleness and mobility of their joints. So they may need to undergo static splinting to get a full range of motion prior to you doing any kind of reconstructive procedure. So they need to obtain supple joints before that. And that's just something to keep in mind. All right, moving on to swan neck deformity. This is a flexion at the DIP and hyperextension at the PIP. So you have a loss of the extrinsic force on the distal phalanx. For swan neck deformity, you should consider whether it is flexible or possibly correctable. The etiology is a loss of extension of the DIP or overflow of extension force of the PIP. So loss of the terminal tendon, like a mallet finger or crush injuries of the DIP. This can result from laceration or a closed avulsion from a blow with an outstretched digit or attritional, like from RA. It can also result from increased pull at the central slip, like RA or spasticity or, uh, with intrinsic tightness. The banal intrinsic tightness test is flexion of the PIP with the MCP flexed or extended. And if the PIP is tighter with the MCP extended, you have intrinsic tightness. Loss of the pull of the FDS due to laceration or rupture can result in swan neck deformity. And laxity of the volar plate can occur with stretch or rupture over time. And over time, similar to boutonniere deformity, this deformity can become fixed and arthrosis can develop. The clinical presentation of swan neck deformities and inability to flex the PIP, it, become, it can become locked in hyperextension with the need for manual flexion, weak grasp, or pain from arthrosis. For physical exam, again, check your active and passive range of motion and check if it's passively correctable. Treatment can range from conservative to operative. So conservative treatment of swan neck deformity includes hand therapy, corrective arthrosis. Extension block arthrosis can help correct PIP hyperextension. And then you can have progressive extension arthrosis for D the DIP. Operative treatment of swan neck deformities of the PIP include lengthening the central slip, releasing the intrinsics if they're tight, FDS tenodesis, which is tightening at the PIP or dermodesis. You can do a Fowler central slip tenotomy. This involves a, a tenotomy of the central slip and lateral bands. The oblique retinacular ligament can be used to correct a swan neck deformity. And for arthrosis, you can perform an arthrodesis or arthroplasty. 
All right. So we'll talk about tendon transfers and we'll go pretty quickly, but basically when you plan them, you need to know what works, what's available and what's needed. Okay. And you want to match similar capacity, amplitude, and direction for tension. You want to be too tight, better than too loose, which we've been tested on. And then you'll perform a pulver taft weave, which at least two of these and at 90 degrees between each other, there's different types of tendon transfers. So remember these are done when cannot do primary repair or in the case of nerve palsy. So if you have a high radial nerve palsy with no return of function in six months, then you want to think tendon transfers. And we have some great tendon transfers for those, the brand or Jones transfers. So we're commonly tested on this for wrist extension. You'll use the pronator teres to ECRB for thumb extension. You'll use palmaris longus to EPL and for digital extension, you'll use FCR FCU to the extensor digitorum communis. So EDC. So remember, PT to ECRB, PL to EPL, and FCR, FCU to EDC. You can also use FDS for EPL. And then remember, when you're thinking about FCR, FCU for the extensors, there is a disadvantage of using FCU because that's an important wrist flexor. And then remember, you can also use FDS if you need for finger extension. AIN palsies is, is next. So remember, AIN innervates FPL and FDP of the index and long, as well as PQ. So you can do an FDP to FDP side to side. You can do FDS of the ring to FPL for thus for AIN palsy for EPL rupture. So remember, we're commonly tested on this. It's a patient that had a Colley's fracture or some kind of distal radius fracture that has attritional rupture of the EPL. You cannot perform a primary repair on this. You're going to want to do an EIP or extensor indices proprius to EPL. For rheumatoid arthritis, you can have ruptures of small finger, small and ring, small ring and long. And remember that the options include a side-to-side tenodesis, or you can do FDS to one of these extensors. For Volkmann's ischemic contractures, usually remember have fibrosis of the FDP muscles. You can do endoside FDP for what's working. For chronic FPL laceration, you can either consider a fusion or FDS from the ring finger. And then finally, I'll go over intrinsic tendon transfers. So we'll go over thumb, opponent's plasty. So the thumb for opponents, APB is the most important thing in our muscle, and this seeks to restore flexion, abduction, and pronation, which we've been tested on, if you can believe it. There's different types of opponent's plasty. So the phalens is using ECU to EPB around the ulna. There's bulk halter, which is EIP to APB. Remember, Abductor pollicis brevis is the most important muscle in thumb opposition, and this is the most common. This is routed subcutaneously, and so you, remember, you can use this if you have like median and ulnar nerve palsies and you only have your radial nerve left. There is the FDS to APB, which is another option. There's the Kamitz transfer, which is passive, and that's the palmaris plus the fascia to the abductor pollicis brevis. And then there's the Huber transfer, which is the ADQ, the hyperthenar muscle, to the tendon of the APB. And then finally, there's low and ulnar nerve palsies and low ulnar and median nerve palsies can cause intrinsic minus or clawing. So you'll first test them with the Bouvier test, which we talked about in our hand nerves, where you'll flex the MCP and look for IP extension. If this corrects the intrinsic minus posturing, you can think about intrinsic positioning, which we've been tested on, believe it or not. And this can use the FDS to very varying levels of the pulleys, but typically most commonly it's FDS to the A2 pulley for passive transfer for intrinsic repositioning. You can also perform an FDS transfer to the lateral band of both the ring and the little fingers if you have clawing to correct the loss of IP joint extension or to correct a Wartenberg sign. You can also use EDL, which we've been tested on shockingly. If you need correction of clawing of all four fingers, you can use FDS and EDL and tercellary graft since you can't split your FDS into four tendons. 
All right, Rosie, why don't you talk to us a little bit about tendon injuries? So acute flexor tendon injuries. All right. So talking about acute flexor tendon injuries, the flexor tendons are divided into five zones. Zone one is the area distal to the FDS insertion at the mid middle phalanx, and it only contains FDP. Zone two is the area from FDS insertion to the proximal A1 pulley at approximately the level of the distal palmar crease. Zone three is the area between the proximal aspect of the A1 pulley and the proximal aspect of the origin of the lumbricals from the FDP tendons. So this is from the distal portion of the transverse carpal ligament to the distal palmar crease. Zone four is the region within the carpal tunnel. And then zone five is from the muscular tendons junction distally to the proximal edge of the transverse carpal ligament. We'll go into like some of the roles of these muscles. FDS flexes the PIP and is innervated by the median nerve. FDP flexes the DIPs and the PIPs. It's innervated by the median nerve for the index and long fingers and the ulnar nerve for the ring and small. And the FDS it slips insert onto the mid middle phalanx while the FDP continues through the fiber osseous sheath to insert on the volar base of the distal phalanx. The digits of fiber osseous sheath blend with synovium. And like I said, both FDS and FTP travel through here. There are five pulleys, three cru- cruciform pulleys, which are numbered proximal to distal and they keep the tendon opposed to the bone. The order of the pulleys is the A1 at the MCP, the A2 at the periosteum of the proximal phalanx, and then C1, um, and then A3, which is the palmar plate of PIP, and then C2, and then A4, um, and then C3 and A5. So we had a test question that was, which pulleys originate off the volar plate? And that's A1, 3, and 5. They're over the joints. A2 pulley can rupture in rock climbers or gymnasts, and you treat this with supportive measures in the ring splint. That we've been tested on. So A2 pulley ruptures, gymnasts, rock climbers. You can test FDS by examining the isolated PIP flexion of each digit with the other digits held in full extension. Which we've been tested on. And then you can test FDP by asking the patient to flex their DIP joint while, hel- while the PIP is held in extension. You can also do a tenodesis, which is flexion of the wrist, and that will extend the fingers with intact tendons. And extension of the wrist will flex the fingers if the tendons are lacerated. All right, so treatment of acute tendon lacerations. From not locations, they should be on the outside. And then the most biomechanical strength is a 3-0 suture locking repair with the dorsally placed knot. Ideally, you'll perform a four-strand core suture repair one centimeter from the cut end and an epitendinous suture two millimeters deep until two millimeters back from the cut edge. The most common core stitch is cruciate and locking has been shown to be superior. So some of the more common injuries, zone one is usually isolated FTP injuries or avulsion injuries, including jersey finger, which is an avulsion of the tendon from the distal phalanx or a fracture at the base of the distal phalanx. Classically, the ring finger is involved and the mechanism is a sudden hyperextension applied to a finger with the FTP and maximal contraction. These are classified in the Letty classification. So type one is where the proximal tendon is retracted into the palm and this includes disruption of the blood supply. So early repair is important in type one. Type two, the tendon is retracted to the PIP joint. Type three has avulsion of the tendon with a bony fragment, which is usually entrapped by the distal edge of the A4 pulley, so it cannot retract. Um, you can repair these with suture buttons, and you may also use suture anchors or pins if there's bony avulsion. So if the test question talks about the flexor tendon being in the palm, you need to repair that within a few days. All right, zone two is known as no man's land due to historically poor results of repair. So you want to repair these if there's over 60% of the tendon disruption. If there's less than 60% of the tendon disruption, then you can debride the cut edges to prevent it from catching at the pulleys. 
Epitenin and sutures in zone two can decrease gap formation and improve contour and also improve strength of the construct. Zone three injuries are usually complex due to the proximity of the neurovascular structures, including the common digital superficial arch and then motor branch of the medium and lumbrical muscles. So remember that too much advancement can cause a lumbrical plus finger, which is paradoxical IP extension with attempted forceful flexion. Zone four injuries are rare because of the protection provided by the transverse carpal ligament and the carpal bones. Injuries in the zone typically involve the median nerve as it is the most superficial structure in the carpal tunnel. Zone five can be repaired in around three weeks, so a little bit longer than our uh, lower zones. So I'll go over a couple of the rehabilitation principles. So just remember that zone two has the worst outcomes that can typically require tenolysis. At six weeks, the tenor repair is 20% stronger than surgery. And then for rehabilitation programs, there's passive motion and active. And in general, early active motion is best. It's best for range of motion. There is a higher rate of ruptures. Remember, you need at least four strands to initiate early active range of motion, and you'll get an increased excursion with this protocol. For tendon grafting repairs, you're going to want to complete immobilization for four weeks for children. And then, like I said, do not perform tenolysis until four to six months out from tendon repair. Next, we'll go over tendon reconstruction. And the really the main point of tendon reconstruction is the boy's preoperative classification. And it goes one through five. And one is good and minimal scar and mobile joints. And the rest you'll have scar tissue, contractures, joint damage, nerve damage, or multi-system injury. So um, a mix of these. And the only condition in which you can perform a one-stage repair is boys one. Everything else you need a two-stage. So remember, one stage of properly healed wound, full passive range of motion, absence of significant scarring, intact pulley system and tendon sheath, preserve neurovascular function, and absence of PIP joint contractures. If you have any of these, then it needs a two-stage. For a rupture of a repaired tendon, you can typically perform a primary repair four to six weeks out, but you might need a stage reconstruction if you have a limited passive range of motion or no sheath. MRI can diagnose rupture. And then remember in one stage, it's grafting at the time of your reconstruction. And in two stages, you'll do a pulley reconstruction over a silicone rod. Remember A2, A4 critical with tendon grafting at stage two. There's a difference in your choice of donor tendon. So in general, there's extrasynovial and intrasynovial. There's a little bit of pros and cons for each. Extrasynovial has more scarring, but it's more common. So our most common is palmaris longus plantaris toe extensors, and then intrasynovial is flexor digitorum longus, usually from the second toe, but it just has a decreased length. So remember that palmaris longus is present in 85% of patients. And then finally, we'll go over some of the extensor compartments at the wrist. So there's six dorsal compartments. The first one is APL and EPB, and that is indicated in decor veins. Second dorsal compartment is ECRL and ECRB, and that's associated with intersection syndrome. The third compartment is EPL, and you can see that chronic rupture and non-displaced distal radius fractures. Remember, the fourth compartment has EIP and EDC, and EIP is the most distal extensor muscle belly, which we've been tested on. There's compartment five, which is EDM, and compartment six, which is ECU, and that's associated with snapping ECU syndrome. Like I said, the first dorsal compartment contains APL and EPB, which run through rigid tunnel. APL is larger. It has multiple slips and EPB is smaller and more dorsal, and it has a more distal muscle belly, which we're tested on. And the most common cause of decor veins, like the most common anomaly will be EPB has its own subcompartment. Clinical evaluation, you'll do a Finkelstein's or an Eikhoff. So Finkelstein's, you'll grasp the patient's thumb and deviate the wrist ulnarly. 
You'll have tenderness over the first dorsal compartment near the radial styloid, and it can be frequently new mothers that are holding their baby's head. Non-operative treatment can include rest, splint, corticosteroids, but if that doesn't work, you can release the first dorsal compartment. Intersection syndrome, like I said, is pain syndrome in the distal forearm at the intersection of the first and second extensor compartments. Treatment includes corticosteroid injections, splinting, or release of the second compartment. The third compartment, like I said, is EPL, and this is thumb extension at the IP joint, hyperextension at the IP joint. Remember that the intrinsics will extend the thumb to neutral. And like I said, EPL can be ruptured in non-displaced or minimally displaced distal radius fractures. And you treat that with an EIP tendon transfer, frequently tested EIP to EPL. Trigger finger or stenosing tenosynovitis. This is a pathology at the A1 pulley. You can undergo release. Remember that congenital trigger thumb will have intermittent episodes of catching or locking of the thumb since birth. And you can see a nodule there, which is called not as node. You will release A1 pulley, but you will not excise the node. There is lateral epicondylitis, which is a sharp pain at the epicondyle exacerbated by passive flexion of the wrist and fingers with elbow extension. You can try corticosteroid injection, operative debridement. The bad actor is ECRB. So ECRB is implicated in the development of lateral epicondylitis. All right, Rosie, why don't you take us through some miscellaneous? Miscellaneous factoids. We talked before about the upper limit of ischemia time for tourniquets, which is two hours. And if you go past two hours, you need to have a five minute release for every extra 30 minutes used. Remember that for PIP contractures, you'll do a surgical release. You'll release the chakra and ligaments first, followed by accessory collateral and manipulation. Thank you so much for joining us for our Thank you guys. tendon lecture. This is a marathon of hand. So next week we'll be moving on to head and neck. Thank yes. you. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of our topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.